0: So we're going to start with prayer this morning. I'm going to share just something with you, asking for your prayers this week. Um, representative John Ratcliffe, the, the representative for our district, has asked me and a few other guys to be on a faith advisory board. We're meeting for the first time this Wednesday in Rockwall. And I am, uh, the reason I've been connected to this, because my vast insight into politics and And uh, sports also. My sports insight has been part of that as well. Actually, my connection to this is his chief counsel is a guy that I've raced bikes with. So, you know, I'm I'm hoping that maybe part of this faith advisory board will involve bike racing. It probably won't, though. So, I really need lots of prayer because I'm um, I want to represent the Lord well in this endeavor that I feel like is way beyond me, and I want to. Offer that up in prayer, and I want to pray for another church, another pastor and his wife in our community. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, um, a couple things. We just pray for, first of all, just technical difficulties, anything that that could get in the way of you being enjoyed in these next few minutes. Pray that you would eliminate those. Um, Secondly, Lord, I want to pray for another pastor and his wife. I want to pray for Rick and Julie Prettyman and for Aldersgate Church. Uh, Being friends with Rick and Julie, I just um, have a special affection for them, just um, knowing firsthand as a a pastor the sort of challenges that he faces from day to day and week to week. Lord, I pray that you would fuel him with worship. uh, That he would be overwhelmed with what he is uh, engaging every day, the wonder of it, the the glory of it. I pray that you would uh, pry his eyes away from the troubling things and place them on the wonderful things, the, the people that you're, you're working, the lives that you're changing, the people who are, are walking with you, the people are an, who are encouragement. And I pray that in that, that he will find endurance to walk with um, folks in very difficult situations. Lord, I pray that you would give him worship-fueled endurance. I pray for their marriage, Lord. I pray that that is rich and healthy. I pray that it is a resource um, or something that you are using in his life to show him the relationship between Christ and the church, that one is informing the other and that it's encouraging him in his ministry and giving him an affection, a relentless affection for your bride. God, I'm thankful for shared ministry with Aldersgate in our community. I'm thankful that we know the same people and we walk the same ground. I'm thankful that we enjoy the same risen Lord, that we have the same Holy Spirit, the same baptism. Lord, I pray that you would guard us, that you would guard every other Christian church in this community from ever entertaining a spirit of competition, but that we would cheer for one another begging for great things in and through the local um, churches in our community. We pray this for Aldersgate right now. We just pray for their, just pray for real health. Pray for a, a weekly nourishment, encouragement, and equipping that is resulting in salty, bright, aromatic worship between Sundays. Lord, I also want to pray this morning about, uh, I want to pray for uh, John Ratcliffe. I'm thankful for his position that, that you've placed him in. I'm thankful that he is a man that, that knows you and trusts you and is wanting to honor you as he serves. I'm thankful for the fact that he's even put together a faith advisory board. Lord, I pray for the time that we spend together on Wednesday and the time that we spend quarterly in the future that that there would be a wisdom that would be as if you were in the, in the room with us, knowing that ultimately you are, but a wisdom that is a reflection of um, our wisdom that would result in your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. As we pray for kings and those in authority, that the kingdom could be advanced, uh, that there would be peace, Lord, we pray for that in our country, and we pray that whatever role that John Ratcliffe has, whatever role this faith advisory board may have, that it would be faithful. I entrust that to you. I ask for your guidance in that. I pray for a, a, a spirit that's quick to listen and slow to speak. Lord, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, and my burden this morning is that we can be really, really honest in the next few minutes, without it being a, um, a discouraging gripe session. It can be a hope-filled, hope-filled uh, reality check, where we are equipped with how you view your people, and it will fuel us as we walk in difficult life with one another. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Let me get there myself. Ephesians chapter 1. The title of today's sermon is we're continuing in a series of sermons that are titled, Things Worth Praying For. The title of this morning's message is A Valued Inheritance. I'm going, beginning, I'm going to begin in verse 15 and read through the first part of verse 19. And then I want to acquaint you with our passage for those of us that are here for the first time or those of us that uh, just sort of disengaged for the week. So we can climb back into this passage. I'm not a big storyteller. I don't tell jokes. I've told one, I think, in 12 years, 13 years, and it was only to expose a passage. My job this morning is to expose this passage, so I hope that you are here to hear God's word exposed. So let's begin in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers The first part of this chapter, Paul has been enjoying God out loud, sort of. He's been um, involved in what what we would call a a benediction, just enjoying the glories of the, the blessings that we have in Christ. And here in verse 15, he's shifting from this sort of vertical enjoyment of God to this horizontal application of that love for God in praying for the Ephesian church. And that's what he's doing here. He says, I'm remembering you in my prayers. I do not cease to give thanks for you. And here's specifically what he's praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, the Ephesian church, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's not praying for promotion. He's not praying for money. He's not praying for food or clothing. He's not praying that they will be, have favor with God and man. He's not praying that somebody will get well. He's praying for knowledge. He's praying that this church will know God specifically. And the word he uses for knowledge there is a word that's epinosis, which is a big word that could almost mean experience God. He's praying that they would experience God. That He would give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge or the experience of God. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened to three things. It's a very linear passage. You've got to love how linear Paul is. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, here's the first thing, the hope to which he has called you. That's where we went last week. If you missed last week's Sunday, it was about hope. And this morning will be the first of two sermons on the second thing here. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And here's the third thing in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul is praying for the Ephesian church that they would truly experience God in these three ways, that they would know the hope to which they've been called, that they would know and understand and appreciate the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and third, that they would know and experience the greatness of his power toward us who believe. This morning, we're going to spend our whole time just on verse 18, considering that second thing What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? I want to sort of break this passage down into a few little chunks and sort of explore them and consider them as we go. First of all, His inheritance. This is the first clue in this passage, this possessive pronoun, His, that's pointing us toward the thought that He is talking about us, or the saints, being His inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints suggests that he's talking about here at least the inheritance that he receives in us. The inheritance that he receives in the saints. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I have about four passages for you to turn to this morning. And this is the first of those. Deuteronomy chapter 32. There's a strong case to be made, strong support that God has viewed his people as his inheritance over the ages. This event that's being written about here, when it was written, was about 1,500 years before Jesus, so that would be about 3,500 years before now. Uh, It's toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy. If you look at chapter 32, there's only a couple more chapters after it. Uh, Chapter 33 is Moses' final blessing on Israel, and chapter 34, he dies. This is toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is standing on Nebo, overlooking the promised land, not able to go in. They've been delivered through the the plagues, through the mighty acts of judgment called the plagues from Egypt. They've gone to Sinai via the the Red Sea on dry ground. They've gone to Sinai and they've marched around the wilderness for 40 days for what um, um, equated to a 40-year-long funeral procession as the first generation is dying off one at a time groups at a time. And here we pick up at Deuteronomy chapter 32 in Moses' song. We could literally call this Moses' swan song. We don't know if he, it says he wrote or he, he, he spoke these words, so I don't know if this became an actual literal song at any point, but in verse 9 and 10 is where I want to spend these next few minutes. After Moses has spent a good part of his life with this people, here's what he says in verse 9. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage or his inheritance. Beautiful passage that encourages us with the, what, what God sees his people as. His portion and his heritage. And then there's the marvel of verse 10. He found him, this is Jacob, which would refer to Israel. He found Israel in a desert land in, in Egypt. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. As we're considering this morning what God thinks of his people, how God sees his people, first I want us to consider that he sees his people as his portion. We sang the song this this morning, Our Portion Is You. We'll flip the song around. We are his portion, because they're both true. We are his portion. We are his inheritance. Here it says, even add to that, we are the apple of his eye. I did some research this week trying to figure out the apple of the eye idiom, trying to figure out where this came from. And I found there was an early reference to 800 something AD, but everyone pointed back to these being the first accounts of that usage of the phrase, apple of his eye. There's only one, it's used about five times in our Bible. Only one time does it actually say literally in Hebrew, apple, and that would be in Zechariah chapter 3. In all these other references, it's pointing toward this thought that what's being said there literally is the pupil of his eye or the eyeball of his eye. And what they believe this is saying here, what this is pointing to is as you're gazing on someone, say a man is looking at his wife, and you look at the man's eyeball and the reflection in their eye is like a little miniature version of his wife, a little miniature her that she is the apple of his eye. It's a beautiful picture, an idiom that has to do with being cherished. It refers to the little reflected figure of someone when they're looked at directly. And in some ways, when he says, you are the apple of my eye, God's people, he's saying, wherever you go, wherever I go, you are in my eye and on my mind. Let that hit you for a minute. What does God think of his people? First of all, he thinks us, He considers us his portion. He considers us his inheritance. And he considers us the apple of his eye. Some really beautiful, wonderful truths there. I want you to just let those soak in for a moment as you're turning to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. We don't know how far we're, fast or we're going back in time. We don't know how far back in time we're going to this passage, to this account in Numbers chapter 11. But this has to do with the wilderness wanderings, the book of Numbers. It gives us the details of what life was like, and what was really going on during that wilderness wandering. If we didn't have the book of Numbers, then we might have rose-colored glasses thinking that Moses' time with the nation of Israel... And Moses, or Israel's experience with God was really wonderful. Because we see these words, you're the apple of my eye, you're my portion, you're my inheritance. But we have some additional words that are equally true that help round out the reality of what's going on behind God's calling them the apple of his eye. Consider this for a moment. gonna Actually, I'll go ahead and read the passage beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord, the apple of God's eye, complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera, because of the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong and wanton, uh, there's another version that says wanton craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing when, when we were slaves, by the way. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, oh, but now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all to eat but this bread that falls from the sky. This bread that just is there every single morning. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedelium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills, or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Now let's see what Moses thinks about all this. The, the songwriter, mind you, that singing his swan song that we just read from. Let's see what Moses says. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive of this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Consider here for a moment that this songwriter in his swan song that says that the nation of Israel is God's portion that says that this is this is Jacob's or Jacob is his inheritance that calls the nation of Israel the apple of his eye is begging to relieve to be relieved of duty here via death. Leading this apple of your eye is death to me. They are a grumbling, faithless, fearful bunch of complainers start to finish if you read the book of Numbers. Start to finish. Yet God counted them his portion. God counted them his heritage and his inheritance. And God called them the apple of his eye. Maybe this is just Old Testament stuff. Let's look over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This will be an encouraging passage for you. We can think for a moment that maybe things are really different now. 1 Peter chapter 2, turn over here. We're going to see some, some more support for God viewing his people as his inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter is writing to elect exiles, it says in chapter 1. That would be believers all over the Roman diaspora was the term. It was, it was dispersion. It's a fancy way of saying the dispersion that took place during the Babylonian exile and the dispersion that consequently took place during Roman rule. There's probably more of the same. He's writing to believers all over the Roman Empire in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And here's what he says to these people in verse 9. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We can add some words to what God thinks about his people, to what we've already considered his portion, his inheritance, the apple of his eye. We can add to that chosen, royal, holy, his possession, God's people. He's specifically, you are my people and those receiving mercy. Now, what I want you to see here before we continue and really take a look at people this side of the cross, I want you to see a continued message here that God's people are his inheritance. And I'm talking singular. God's people together are his inheritance. The words that are used here in this passage that are singular are race, priesthood, a nation, a possession, a people, and God's people. Those are speaking of God's people collectively as the saints Past, present, and future, Old Testament and new, not as individuals but as people of God, past, present, and future from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every age, every culture, and eclectic gathering of what the Greek calls in our New Testament the ecclesia. That's where eclectic comes from. Believers from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Kazakhstan, Germany, Russia, Greenville royal people, chosen people, holy people, his possession, his portion, his inheritance, the apple of his eye. Now go back to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to pick up two more words right from our passage here that are right in front of us. You may have missed these words. I bet you didn't if you were really paying attention. Two wonderful words that just show up, and when they show up, you have to go, wait a second, why is that in there? The words riches and the word Glorious, that you may know, he's praying, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Riches and glorious could be added to the list of words that we've gathered so far of what God sees in his saints. This is the portion of the sermon that I've been really nervous about, because I want to be really honest with you in these next few minutes. These aren't words that I would always use about you. They aren't words that I would always use about me. When I think about this church family, I don't think immediately. I don't make a beeline to riches. I did this morning. I sat over there and I watched just a sweet thing happen right in front of me, a small thing, a beautiful thing happened as we sang together, God's people. I was enjoying the riches this morning, but I don't always. I would have used that word this morning, but I don't always. The words riches and the words glorious. These aren't words that I would typically use for the saints. His portion and his heritage and the apple of his eye and riches and glorious. And the reason these words aren't the words I would use about the saints past, present, I can't speak for the future, is because I read the rest of the book of Numbers. I read the rest of our Old Testament. I read a book in our Old Testament called Hosea that leads me to think of other words That are more fitting for this people past and present. I highly recommend you reading the book of Hosea if you never have. If you want to know how God loves you and you want to know who you really are. It's a wonderful read. The reason these words aren't the words that I would naturally use. The words riches, the words glorious, the apple of his eye. Is because I know me and I know you. We are a fragile bunch. We're a frail bunch. We're fickle. We're inconsistent. We're fearful. We're critical. And in general, we can be very, and often are, very disappointing. It's my very honest portion of the sermon that led me to the Gospels. Turn to the book of Matthew. This is where we're going to spend, really, I have one more passage I want you to turn to after the book, this passage we're going to look at in Matthew. Starting in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to just spend a few minutes looking at the kind of people that Jesus goes after. The kind of people that Jesus apparently treats like they're his riches, like they're glorious, like they're his portion, like they're his heritage, like they are the apple of his eye. Let's just look for a moment at a few snapshots over the course of Matthew 4 through Matthew 9 Like one right after another example, picture of who God is valuing, as we see who Jesus values. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called these fishermen as well. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. So apparently he's loving already some fishermen. You have been around fishermen? Can you imagine what commercial fishermen smell like? Can you imagine the language commercial fishermen use between one another? They're not my first choice for church folk. But they're who he called first. Look at Matthew chapter 8. Just a few chapters over. Matthew chapter 8 verse 1. Let's see what happens next. Let's see who Jesus is interacting with and engaging with. Let's see what he does. Chapter Eight, verse one. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper—one who would have been considered unclean, the least savory person in the land—a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, "Lord, if you will, you can make me clean." And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he did the unthinkable. He touched him saying, I will, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Apparently so far he's going after fishermen, and he's touching and healing a leper. Let's look in the same chapter at verse twenty eight. And he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the water. So far, if we really look at who Jesus is loving on here in the Gospels, he's loving on some fishermen, leper, and a demon-possessed pair. A bunch of fierce, or a couple of fierce cats. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. It's just one right after another. Getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to him, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Who do you think, or why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So, so far, some fishermen, some lepers, or a leper, some fierce guys, and a lame guy right here. His inheritance. His portion. The apple of his eye. Riches. Glorious. Let's continue. Maybe it'll get better. Verse 9. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the, ta- at the tax booth, not a tax collector. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Seriously, not a tax collector. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. All right, our portion, that's his portion? Tax collectors were the vilest, lowest forms of life, the most corrupt people in that context. And that's who he came for? Man, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. This is a key passage. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're figuring out who his portion is. Now we're figuring out who his inheritance is, who the apple of his eye is. It's a bunch of sinners, tax collectors, fishermen, lepers, possessed people, lame people. Let's look at verse 20. We're just going to look at a couple more just to gather in a few more before we move on. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, which would have also considered her quite unclean, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her said to her, Take heart, daughter. Daughter. He called one of these other guys, Son. Take hold, unclean daughter. Daughter. Your faith has made you clean. Your faith has made you well. So apparently he loves and values the hemorrhaging as well. Here's the last one. Next to the last one actually. Verse 27. One near and dear to me. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to him, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Let's see what they said. Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Give sight to the blind. That's who he's after, blind folk, lame folk, lepers, the hemorrhaging Sinners. Let's look at this last one in verse 32, since just one right after another, like a machine gun example in verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. I'm thinking at this point, I'm not sure why this is so foreign. I'm not sure why they're saying, never has anything been seen like this in Israel, because God had been loving his people this way for 1,500 years by that point. It should have been familiar. Oh, well, there he goes again, loving the lame, the least desirable, the tax collectors, the sinners, the lepers, the blind, the hemorrhaging The fierce. Is that who he's after? That's who he's calling his portion? Is this his people? Apparently so. This is his portion. Jacob, his allotted heritage. Do you know Jacob's story? Do you know that G- Jacob was a heel-grabbing liar? If it were me, if I was the one gathering a heritage and a portion, I'd go after Esau. At least he was a hard-working man and wasn't a little mama's boy, a little lying mama's boy. But God, is that going after the sick? He's going after the lame. He's going after the liar. Thank goodness. That's his allotted heritage. He found him. He encircled him. He cared for him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. His saints, Us. The church are the riches of his inheritance, his glorious inheritance. We are the apple of his eye. Just let it hit you. All of it. All of it. The irony, I hope, is sitting on you right now. Some application thoughts. Two of the application thoughts I'm not even going to mention. I'm going to just encourage you to go back and listen to June 14th's message from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Beautiful applications when you begin to see yourself as whose you are. When you begin to see yourself as belonging to him. I only have one application point this morning, but I'm going to spend a few minutes on it. And it really comes in the form of a question. A real honesty. I prayed real honesty this morning. Knowing his love for the saints, knowing his investment of the saints as his inheritance, knowing the price paid to redeem the saints, knowing that the saints are referred to as his riches, as glorious, and the apple of his eye, how do you feel about the saints? What do you think of church? That's where I was leaving this whole time this morning. What do you think of church? I'm talking real people. I'm not talking in a figurative sense. I'm not talking metaphor. I'm talking what do you think about your church? If God calls this church his inheritance, his portion, the apple of his eye, the saints, if he considers us his riches and glorious, what do you consider us? Do you love the church like this? Do you aspire to love the church like this? Do you want to love the church like this? If we are to grow in God's likeness, then we should grow in our love for his glorious investment so that we too treat the saints like riches. So that we too consider the church the apple of our eye, the little bitty thing. It's always reflecting in view because it's always in view. Now, for the very honest thought. If you can't or don't consider the church the apple of your eye, if you can't or don't don't consider it your riches and glorious, maybe it's because of disappointment. The Saints have disappointed me, to be very honest and vulnerable time, have disappointed me more times than I can count. God's people have disappointed me as one of your pastors more times than I can count. I shared a few months ago that I've grown to the point of being suspicious to my shame. The Lord's helping me with that, by the way. But I grew to the point of being suspicious. I'm not there now. But at times, I've been so disappointed and so hurt and so wounded that I do two things. I insulate and I isolate. I insulate myself from you and I isolate myself from you. To my shame. Post-traumatic stress syndrome or PTSD or whatever the acronym is, you know, that comes from the enemy, or it can come from somebody abusing you, and come from folks that you really love too and who love you. Maybe it's because we are so vulnerable and open to one another that we can have so much pain between one another. So disappointment can lead to us devaluing the church instead of growing in our love and affection for the church. And if you're like me, you might just insulate insulate yourself from people that you know are mad at you instead of loving them. If you're like me, maybe you isolate yourself from people who are mad at you. Because it's just easier to be by yourself. Disappointment can lead to devaluing the church. And just a few thoughts here on why that might happen. You might have expectations that aren't fair. The reason I read all these other passages about the realities of lepers and sinners and tax collectors and fishermen. The reason I mentioned this reality about Jacob, a heel-grabbing liar. The mention, I, the reason I, I read from Numbers chapter 11 where Moses is saying, shoot me now so that we could adjust our expectations of God's people. Are you expecting of church a bunch of fixed folk? You're going to have to keep looking because it's not here. And guess what? It's not in the other 98 Christian churches in our community. It may be in your made-up church that you visit at home in your mind. But when you get up next to real people, you're going to find lepers. You're going to find people that, yes, they've been healed of their muteness where they can speak, yet they still say stupid things. You're going to find people that have been healed of their lameness, yet they still walk with a limp sometimes. You're going to find people that have been healed of their blindness, yet they're going to still walk at times like they're blind. Man, what are your expectations? If you're expecting a bunch of finished works in those that you gather with, man, you're gonna be forever disappointed, or and or. Another question is, what do you do with your anxieties? The last few years, I've been acquainted with anxiety for the first time in my life. was ministering to, to, to someone dear to me that was going through these anxiety things that were inexplicable to them. I could not explain why they were so anxious. And I was like, man, you need to buck up. You know? <laughs> Come on, huh? this is just not right. You're surrounded by people that are going to take care of you. You have nothing to be anxious about. And then something happened to me on a plane ride. Scott was on that plane, too. It was one of those little pencil planes. It has, like, one seat on one side and two on the other. And I was sitting next to a very, very large man. I was next to the window. And we got to the end of the runway, and they said, oh, we're going to have to power down, and it might be three or four hours before we take off. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm hot. I'm feeling claustrophobic. I don't deal well with claustrophobia, something that just sort of scares me. So I'm like, I'm about to lose it. And I thought, what happens if you lose it in a plane at the end of a runway? (laughs) I mean, I actually started thinking, do they put you in a straitjacket? Do they have some medicine that might help? Because I'm about to lose my mind. And I knew, I mean, all the facts that, hey, we're safe. I'm not going to die. All the facts were there, but anxiety doesn't listen to facts. It was my first encounter with what I would call a true anxiety attack. I came that close to losing it. Thankfully, I was able to stand up in the aisle and move to another seat that was open. But even, I'm talking hours into, the, we, took up, we took off about 10 minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> hours into the flight, though, I was still wasted. I mean, just like post-adrenaline rush. My first taste. I think the Lord gave me that so that I could minister to this person <laughs> Say, I don't get it either, but I understand in some weird way. I understand you can be anxious when all the facts say otherwise. It happened to me again about two weeks ago, going to Russia in the middle of the night between here and Frankfurt. All that to say, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for the anxious because you can be anxious for no apparent reason. That's what even makes it worse. All the facts line up where apparently I'm losing it. Something about planes and claustrophobia and stuff like that just has acquainted me with I want to have a lot of compassion for those that are anxious. And unfortunately, I've observed in the last few years folks that are very, very, very anxious among God's people. All the facts I know and I bet they know, but yet they're still anxious when they show up for corporate gatherings, the place where I'm most at ease. They're most uncomfortable. And let me just encourage you that can lead to devaluing the way God sees the church. It can devalue the value of the church to the point where you just tolerate, or you insulate, or you isolate, or you just leave. I want to encourage you there's some wonderful counselors in this church, and it may be something that you need some counsel on. Morris Bean, Greg Fields, Robin Ashmore, some professional counsel. Or you may want to talk to one of your life group shepherds. Or you may want to talk to one of your pastors. It may be hard because maybe one of your pastors is a source of anxiety. I would encourage you to talk to them. Talk to me if I'm that person. Because don't let let anxiety lead to you devaluing what he so cherishes. It happens. You're not somehow a Martian. But you can't live there. You can't stay there. There's too much at stake. And the last thought is, who are you listening to in regards to disappointment? Or devaluing the church that can come from disappointment. Who are you listening to? Who are you spending time with? Are you spending time talking with and listening to people that value and treasure the church and consider it riches? Are you spending time with people that don't have a very high view of God's people? That's going to be contagious. I encourage you to be very wise about how you spend your time, who you spend your time with. I want to charge you to love and value the church by relentlessly engaging her, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, because it's sweeter on this other side of this. I could, we're talking about church stuff all these last few minutes. I could have been talking about a marriage. Anybody ever been married and experienced disappointment? Anybody ever press through that and found a beautiful thing on the other side? Or and or, because it's happened more than once. Not more more than one marriage, just one marriage. (laughs) But or and or. If I had another arm, I'd stick it up. Man, I encourage you, press on in that. The other thing that might lead to devaluing the church or might be part of devaluing the church would just be distractedness. Just a brief thought on this. Just distractedness. Placing excessive value on other things can lead to devaluing what God values. If church gets your leftovers and church gets the only surplus energy, if you have any surplus, then you're undervaluing what God calls riches and what he calls glorious and what he calls the apple of his eye. He gave his best for the saints, and in response, we should give our best to one another. Knowing how he loves the saints must affect how we love the saints. If your love for the saints is damaged by disappointment, then thank your God that his love for you isn't damaged when you're a disappointment. If your value of the saints, as you take this stock of it, is way down the list, then I encourage you to be equipped today. To repent and to respond with real change. Real change. Let me pray and then we're going to have our supper. Lord, I needed this message. I'm so thankful that you place such value on us. I'm so thankful that in these last few minutes as part of the same conversation that we've had an opportunity to consider the exorbitant value placed on us and in the same sitting to consider reality. God, I pray that we can keep both things in view. It will cause us to wonder and marvel as you've loved us the way you have and the way you do. And it would cause us to... Respond in the only way possible by loving one another in like. God, I'm so thankful that you go after lepers, blind, deaf, mute, lame, sick, hemorrhaging, tax collectors, the smelly fishermen. I'm thankful that you set your love on Jacob. That you call us your portion. That's good news. Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read a passage from Ephesians for our supper. It's just a very fitting passage. We've mentioned a little bit about marriage today. I'm going to read the passage through and just draw out a few things. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. But I'm not expecting you to necessarily. Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So he's talking about marriage, and he's talking about Christ and the church. It's not one or the other, it's both and, right here. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. This morning, just draw out three things for our supper. First of all, he refers to the church as her and as his wife and I want to challenge you with this thought if you're just tolerating the church if you're keeping the church at arm's distance and maybe just doing some glad handing if you're not truly embracing the church and you are just sorta at times putting up with the church or maybe not even at all I wanna ask you just to consider this could you be buddies with someone who just endured and just tolerated your wife Men, could you really be close to somebody that just put up with your wife? That just endured her? That just tolerated her? I couldn't. And it doesn't look like God does either. You love him, you love his church. You love him, you love what he loves. Secondly, in verse 26, it apparent that he's washing the church and perfecting her. And that implies that no one in the church and no church has arrived, but is in process. We are being cleansed. We are being perfected. We are reckoned clean, yes, in a moment, sp- split second. But yet we are being washed. And it tells us, too, that thankfully he's not going to leave us in our mess he's not gonna leave us in our mess a fully washed church does not exist and third he loves her with all her imperfections he loves her with all her imperfections can you can you love a church with all her imperfections And then in verse 29, a very fitting passage for how we're going to spend these next few minutes. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Week after week, we take nourishment from our divine, heavenly, perfect, awesome husband. Let's distribute the almonds. We are the Lord's portion. Jacob, his allotted heritage, let it hit you. He found him, he encircled him, he cares for us, he has kept us as the apple of his eye. He feeds us, he washes us, he loves us, he nourishes us. Let's take and eat in faith. let take and drink, enjoying his nourishment. God, we are thankful for this amazing husband. We enjoy you today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's continue in song.
1: Just a couple of brief reminders. If you're visiting for the first time today, we hope that you will Go over to that table right over there and meet Dan Kelso. You already know his name, so just go over there. Say, hey, Dan, this is, the, this is our first time here, and he'll hand you a packet that'll let you know a little bit more about who we are and how we move together. And, uh, and he can answer some other questions that you may have today and point you in the right direction so that you can get to know us a little better. Uh, the second thing, if you are considering or ready for baptism, if you have a child... In your home that's ready to be baptized, if you would please respond to Scott Sutton's email that he sent out um, as soon as you can. That would be very helpful. If you're considering baptism or you have a, a child that's considering baptism, please respond to Scott. We're about four weeks away from this new church beginning in Rockwall County that, will, that most of you know uh, will be coming from Cross Point. And um, Kai and Emily Martin will be coming from C3 Rowlett. And we mentioned it last Sunday night that these families, there are several families from Point that will be, that are already committed to go. And that I just want to remind us all uh, a little bit about what that means. And then let you know that next Sunday, we'll be sending those families at the end of the service. We'll be having them come up. We'll pray for them. And actually send them off. Uh, Then the next week, that next Sunday, I believe that's the 30th, they'll be having a trial run um, through their service with all the logistics and being in a rented facility. And then the next Sunday is the 6th. This is Labor Day, and it's hard, a lot of people traveling. So we didn't want to send them that Sunday. So we're going to do that next Sunday. But as a reminder, you need to know that this, this step of faith that we're trusting, just like Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, that wherever the church is on location, it's a pillar and a buttress of truth. And when it's on location and when it's gathering as God designed, Jesus is believed on in the world. That's the promise. Where the church gathers, it's a pillar and a buttress of truth, and that Jesus is believed on in the world. That's why we're doing this. We're not doing this because we had a real creative idea or we just wanted to clone ourselves, It's not about us. It's not why. The reason is that we want the pillar and buttress of truth to gather so that Jesus is believed on in this world. And so in doing that, everybody that's leaving Crosspoint or everybody that has left where they were and is coming to this church plant, it is a step of faith. It is a call to obey and step out in faith. Just like if you remember last year when we were studying the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. This is the call of Abraham. This is the faith step. Abraham, by faith, obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out. In the Genesis 12 account, it says he left kindred, which means you leave family, friends, the familiar. These families will be leaving and starting to gather at a place where chairs aren't set up for them every week, where it's a new place, new faces. It's not going to be easy. There is a going out and a physical leaving that's taking place. And so as you're thinking and praying, and as you watch us send these families next week, you understand this is a step of faith for them, and it's not easy. But it's good, because it's obedience to go. He goes on to say, by faith he went to live in a land, a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so... These families that leave, that are moving into this new work, are looking forward and expecting, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing the details, going with someone's unanswered questions, but doing it, looking forward that God's going to build his church. He is going to do it. He's already designed it, and he is going to build it, and we're expecting him to call people to Jesus and for Jesus to be believed on in this work. So, it is a step of faith, and it's difficult. So you be praying for these families, even now. I know you, you probably know some of them, but we'll, we'll, you'll see them next week as we send them out. If there are some of you who you're still sitting there thinking, man, I wonder if we're supposed to be a part of this. Maybe you're saying, I don't want to leave Cross Point for good. I don't, but I have a burden to help this new church get off the ground and get started. Man, consider going for three months. Six months. Maybe go to Christmas and just help. Maybe you are gifted in serving here at Crosspoint right now, and you've built a team around you that's pretty strong, and your ministry to Crosspoint and inside Crosspoint is doing well. Think about going and doing that. And some of you, we may come to you and say in the next few weeks, hey, will you consider three months, six months, or a year? So that is the call. We're not being creative. We are stepping out in faith to be obedient. And we look forward to next week sending these families out. And if you have any questions about that, please stop me today about the new church, the new work, what it means to go for three months or six months. Come talk to me, please. And if you're a visitor, please go over here and meet Dan. Y'all stand and I'm going to pray and I'll dismiss us in prayer. Father, thank you for Ben and his faithfulness to Deliver, deliver honestly, and um, to do it in excellence and transparency at the same time. Thank you for this message that you have sent us today. I pray that we would walk in it this week, that we wouldn't set it aside. We're thankful for what you're doing in this new work, this new church. We pray that you would bring details together. Even though it's a step of faith, God, we pray that you would be a lamp in the logistics to our feet, that you would give us just what we need to get through this next week to get this thing off the ground. We love you and we trust you and we're grateful for all that you've done here at Cross Point in the last 12 years and we look forward to what you're going to do in the new work. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.